Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be back with our church family. Um, it is a Sanctity of Life uh, Sunday, and we I don't have a particular message planned, um, uh, you know, designed to speak to that, but I did want to just mention a couple things, and that's that uh, if, if we study the scriptures with any kind of, uh, um, uh, any kind of seriousness, the thing that you recognize about what is unique and special about human beings is that we are made in the image of God, right? The imago Dei is a Latin term to say that we are image bearers. And that means that we are more unique, more special than all of God's creation, period. We were fashioned in our mother's womb. Life begins before we have, you know, whatever, sustainable life outside the womb. Life begins at conception, according to our scriptures, and God is the one that places life into each human being. That means that each human being is made as an image bearer. And regardless of what qualities might hinder their capacity to bear image, meaning like, you know, if they are mentally not as developed as we might expect, if they don't fit in the normal category in terms of height or weight or whatever other things that we kind of anticipate would be typical, the image bearing itself is the reason why human beings have value, why they have dignity, why they should not be treated like mere cells or things to be discarded or nuisances to be put away in a segment of our world where they can be forgotten until they are gone. Human beings are literally image bearers, literally the creation of God, are literally the, the highest pinnacle of God's uh, material creation, and we need to honor that. And that's what comes sanctity of life is uh, so valuable to us and why we stand against um, any form of disposal, eradication of human life, right, by any means um, outside of God's sovereign timing for each human being. And so that's just something for you guys to think about. I think it's a clear teaching of Scripture. If you haven't thought it through carefully, all right, or if you are a young person and as you are uh, finding pushback in school and in society about um, our view of the sanctity of life, feel free to talk with any of the leaders at the church or even any of the other uh, members of the church and uh, get some answers. Don't just settle in for whatever the world has to say about right, what the value of a human life is. If it has enough utilitarian value, will it add something to society? Will it burden its parents? All of that is nonsense, right? Human life and its dignity is valuable because God has made it valuable. And that's the thing that we want to hold on to. Would you turn in your Bibles, and I know it's a kind of a sudden shift, but would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5? And we continue on in um, this portion of Ephesians, the second half of Ephesians, that has very practical right, application for our lives. Remember we said in the beginning of the Ephesians, you could divide it up really into, into two halves. You know, I forgot my... Remote control. <clears throat> Some of you guys noticed I'm wearing my rain, rainproof kicks. <laughs> Not sponsored yet. <laughs> um, what I was saying before I forgot that I didn't have my clicker was um, Ephesians is divided up into two, I think, clear sections, right? The first three chapters are predominantly doctrine. It's teaching us how to think about our salvation, what it means that we are sinners, right, with, with a nature that is just prone to sinfulness. The way it describes it is that we were, we were like in darkness, but not just in darkness, but we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Like there was no hope of salvation or, or life outside of the Lord. And not because we deserved it, but quite the opposite, we deserve the death that we have claimed for ourselves. But God, in his rich grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty of our sins. And the, the infinite value of that grace is so immense that this will bring God glory, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and on. It will bring God glory for all of eternity. It will be one of the things that we will praise Him for, for literally all of eternity going forward in the new heavens and the new earth. 
We'll always remember back. It's not like we'll get eradicated in terms of our memory. We'll remember what it was like that we were captive to sin and a nature to sinfulness. And how all that is behind us. And all that is behind us, not because we earned something or we got better, but because Christ did it all. He paid it all. And what a a tremendous statement of truth that, uh, that Ephesians has for us in the first three chapters about our sinfulness, God's graciousness, the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and what the gospel, how full and rich the gospel is. And from that, chapters four through six, will be just these practical insights. If this is true, then this is how we should conduct ourselves in terms of our church family. This is what it means that we are united together, right? Um, As Gentiles and Jews, now one new humanity. There is no culture. There is no societal pressure. There's nothing that is outside of ourselves that would amount to being greater or a rival to the union, to the oneness we have in this body. There is no human relationships that should be greater than the relationship between us and the Lord, and by extension, us as a church body, as a church family, and the Lord. And this is why by the time we get to these household codes in chapters 5 and 6, where it deals with things like not just love for brother and sister in Christ. That was the first part of chapter 5. Remember, it begins with, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. That becomes then the thesis, the foundation upon which every other command now will come. So how do we deal with each other in the body of Christ? We love each other like Christ loved us. That's what the church of God looks like. This is what the family of God looks like. Your families might be messed up. You might come from some difficult backgrounds in terms of your human earthly relationships. That's unfortunate, and we can weep with you. But here, this should be different, because we have, right, we have a heavenly Father, and we have a sacrificial Lord who has done so much for us that our, our encouragement or our interaction with each other should be so different. From anything else that the world can afford to us. And so from that, right, the experience of what it means to be a child of God in the family of God, now we start to flow into, wives, this is your responsibility to your Christian husbands, to live in submission to him. Husbands, this is your responsibility, right, to your wives as a Christian, that you would love her as Christ loved the church. And with those admonitions, now we, we want to close off this section on wives and husbands with just these last few verses in chapter 5, verses 31 through 33. Part of it is a summary, but another part is a reminder that all of our human relationships are still centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on what Christ has done for us. So let me read to you. I'll read the extended portion from verse 22 all the way down to 33. And then, uh, but we will unpack verses one, 31 through 33. Okay, so let's begin from chapter 5, starting verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue in our study, um, particularly not just of of the family as a whole, uh, generally, but particularly um, husbands and wives and their union, Lord, help us to understand, Lord, the the foundation, the example that we have 
that precedes, Lord, our human marital unions. Lord, we have a union with you. And the love of Christ is more sufficient, more great, um, more significant um, to pursue and enjoy for all of eternity. And I pray that that, that reality would, uh, would settle on our souls as we give attention to husbands and wives. Lord, teach us um, to walk out our human relationships in a way that reflects the gospel and in particular reflects your nature. Because, Lord, that's what we desire to do, is to present you um, to all those that might see us in this life, Lord, that they might be directed towards the things of Christ. And, and more significantly, Lord, that even if no one else sees, that our own souls, our hearts, Lord, would be convinced that you are worth emulating, that you are a God worthwhile, that you deserve all the glory so that we might live, Lord, for your purposes, for your reputation, um, for your glory. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at the Christian marital union in the last few verses of Ephesians 5. And, and I want to say this, like, if I haven't mentioned it before, the pagan view of marriage in the, the, the Greco-Roman time, right, was a very dim view of marriage, heavily, right, focused on what the husband or what, you know, what the male gets. Demosthenes once wrote, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. In this, this individual pagan's mind, it's like you have different lovers, but you have your wife because she is the most loyal and she's the most likely to take care of all your household business, right? Xenophon wasn't that different. He said it was the husband's aim that a wife might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. In his mind, you marry that woman, right? You kind of like her, but she needs to stay out your way. Because you're living your life, and she needs to know as little as possible. You say, well, the Jewish people, right, who had the Old Testament scriptures, they're probably a lot better. A lot of them were better, but there was a, lot, there was a very strong school, the liberal Hillel school amongst the Jews, that taught that a man could divorce his wife for literally anything, including there's too much salt in this food, or you are less attractive than when I first married you. I will say no more about that. Right? Like, like that, that's just wrong. So if you look at the pagan view, or even some of the teachers of the Old Testament view, um, marriage was not necessarily held in high esteem. It was heavily focused on the desires, the idolatrous impulses of the husband. And some of the men might be like, hey, man, why don't we go back to that business, right? And that'd be wrong. Because that's not what God has designed. In fact, that's probably why, if you notice, just even in the bulk of, of this section that we just read this morning, right, before we get to the last three verses, you notice that the command and the, the admonition to the wives, you know, runs like a few verses, runs three verses, 22, 23, 24. But then the command to the husbands runs really through most of the rest of that, right, right up until verse 31, there, must, there is so much more words or verbiage given to Christian husbands, and part of it must be because the thinking in the culture around them about what it meant to be a man, to be a husband, to be a leader of a home, was so significantly different than what the world thought. So let me, let me show you one more thing. Uh, let me give you first a, a kind of an overview. Oh, wait, am I... This, this is how we're looking at verses 31 through 33. First, uh, we will, we will kind of unpack what it means that there's a marital union, right? And the one flesh relationship in verse 31. Verse 32, we'll talk about the Christian union. And, you know, I, th- I think uh, it'll be giving away the plot a little bit. But, but verse 32, I think, unpacks for us what the mystery is. And the mystery is not that a husband loves his wife. That's not the great mystery. The mystery is that Christ is in union with his church. And so then the Christian union, my union to Christ, is what flavors my union to my wife. 
and vice versa. And so then, so you see how we're building? There is the marital union, there's the Christian union, and then there's the Christian marital union. Like it's the combination of those as kind of the, the, the rehashing or the summarizing of the statements for husband and wife that were mentioned earlier in verse 33. But before we get to that part of it, let's, I, I just want us to review a little bit. Can you guys see that okay? Is that hard to read? I hope you guys could read that. We'll put it in two slides. But in this household code section, right, that's what, that's what most scholars refer to this section. Talking about husband's responsibility, wife's responsibilities, children's responsibilities, um, um, bond servants' responsibilities, right? Master's responsibility. Like, like, how does a household conduct itself in terms of its relationships? That's what we mean by the household codes. And there are some who have suggested that I don't see a really big difference between the code in Ephesians 5, right? The code in Colossians, right, 3. Uh, they all seem kind of like the Roman Greco code. Like, no Roman is going to say, you know, oh, we're, we, what do you Christians teach? Well, the scriptures teach us that, um, that we should love our wives. And they'd be like, well, that seems sensible. Like, who doesn't teach that? Yeah, there's some that think that wives are useless or whatever. But for the most part, people think it's fairly noble if you love your wife. It's like, what does it teach about wives? The wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Most of the Romans would say similarly, like, that, that's not that new either. There's a lot of teachers that tell us that we should, you know, care for our, our, our wives as husbands and wives ought to submit to their husbands so that they get along and that, uh, that the household runs well. What's the difference? And again, the difference is not necessarily the command in and of itself, the actionable command. The difference is the why. You notice that I underlined in each of these, right? There's a command for wives to submit to their own husbands, but that's not a hard stop. It's wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's a very Christian context in terms of what that means. Verse 25 in Ephesians 5, husbands are to love their wives. Again, not a hard stop. There's an expansion as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. His love for her is like Christ's love for his church. You see what I mean? It's a distinctly Christian perspective of what it means to submit, what it means to love. By the time we'll get to Ephesians chapter 6, children, obey your parents. Seems like a reasonable command that, that any right, human being in any culture might think is a good idea. But it is expanded again. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. There is a God word reason to do this. In chapter 6 verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. Okay, that seems like reasonable, right? That seems like uh, wisdom that, that any unbeliever can adopt to themselves. But look at the next part. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instead of inciting them towards rebellion, bring them up towards the things of Christ, towards true discipline, right? Child rearing for discipline. Instruction so that they might understand the things of, of God in Christ. The, the next verses after that, on bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Again, here it is, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. And then verse 9, masters, you do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The case I'm trying to establish is when it comes to the household codes and what it means for a wife to live in harmony with her husband, a husband to live in harmony with his wife, and for them to live in harmony with their children and with their extended indentured servanthood, whatever it is, right? Whatever the household commands are for Christians, it is much deeper than act like this, try not to do this. It is about who is your Lord? What is he like? Would you represent him well in every human relationship, in your most intimate human relationships that you have been granted to, um, that you have been granted by him on earth? So then let's return uh, to, to the outline for these three verses, verses 31, 32, and 33. We'll begin in verse 31 with the marital union. 
the marital union. And what we see here in verse 31 is this statement that sounds oddly familiar, right? Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It it should sound very familiar to you because uh, that is a quotation from Genesis 2, 24. It's a quotation that we often hear at weddings. I think is is a very appropriate place to hear at weddings because this is the establishment of a husband and a wife, a man and his wife. This is when it all begins. In the Garden of Eden, there is Adam, and then now there is Eve. But let me give you the backstory so that we kind of understand how this happens. This is the first human male, the first human female, and they're intended to be husband and wife, and this is God's declaration. By the way, Genesis 2.24 is quoted several times throughout all the scriptures Jesus quotes it, right, in the New Testament. It's quoted a, a few times just in the New Testament. But even in the Old Testament, there is an establishment of a principle that defines what marriage is supposed to be all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Probably days, right, after the creation of Adam. Maybe not even days. But days after maybe the creation of the world, there is Adam on the sixth day. And probably on that same day is created Eve. And there you go. Like, within a very short amount of time, When God creates humanity, he creates the male and female, and he puts a husband and wife together and makes this declaration of what it means for them to be in marital union. But here's the backstory: In Genesis chapter 2, back in uh, um, uh, the first part of it, uh, there is God creates Adam, and then he has Adam name all the livestock and the fish, etc. So Genesis 2.20 says this, that the man, and when, it's, when it says the man is ha-adam, it could be translated the man, because Adam literally means man, or it could be translated just Adam. It could be his proper name, or it could be just who, what he is, right? So let's say it's Adam. Adam gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So God lines up all of his Right? Like animal creation and has him name them. Okay, I'm going to call you raccoon. Right? I'm going to call you monkey. I'm going to call you, you know, rhinosaurus. Rhinoster. I can't never say that. Rhino. I'll call you rhino, right? right? And on and on it goes. All these animals and he is naming them. And apparently the Lord has an intention in this because as he names them, right, according to Genesis 2.20, he names all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. And listen to the statement. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In other words, God parades the animals, one, to show Adam that he has to have dominion of over all the animals of the world. But as he does that, the other part of it is so that Adam recognizes something that is not a corresponding thing to me. And I don't know, I imagine that part of it is Adam is naming, you know, uh, Mr. Hippo, and notices there's a Mrs. Hippo, right? Um, Mr. Ostrich, and there's a Mrs. Ostrich, right? There's nothing corresponding to me. He likes Mr. Doggy and Mrs. Doggy, right? They're his friends. Mr. and Mrs. Cat, you know, but Mr. and Mrs. Dog, he's friends with, but there is no corresponding helpmate to him. That's the statement that is made. And so when Eve is made, she is his helper. Now, before you kind of get up in arms, like, how come Eve has to be his help? Why don't he, why don't he help her? He could help her with the dishes. He could help her with the, you know, he certainly can. And this weird notion that she's my helper, and that means that she has to do all the domestic duties, that's weird too. That's not outlined in scripture. What it means that she is his helper means that she is not demeaning or lesser than him, but she will fill in those kind of attributes, those details that he lacks in. See, before we say, oh yeah, but she's just a helper, just a helper, you need to be careful of that. That could almost get blasphemous. Because in the Old Testament, this term for helping or being a helper is used of God himself and how he is the helper of his people. Uh, Exodus 18.4, Deuteronomy 33.7, 1 Sam 7.20, um, Psalm 22, Psalm 46.1. There's several passages that speak of how God is our helper. And so if we think helper is kind of a lesser kind of title, it's like, hey, listen, I know you're the president of the university. We are going to promote you 
to being the counselor, right? Like, that's not a promotion. That's a demotion. You just kind of flip in the language. But to be a helper, at least according to the biblical definition, God is our helper. By the time we get to the New Testament, it's, it's the particular moniker that Jesus uses in John 14 for our, the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit, it'll be an advantage to you when I go because the Holy Spirit will come. He will send, the Father will send the helper. And we don't go, oh, well, I guess, uh, you know, Father was kind of busy. You know, Son is leaving. And so we're left, we have leftover God. The Holy Spirit is the helper, not, not because, right, he is lesser than, he is equal God. He is God, very God. And he will, right, according to John 14, he, he will reveal to us the truth. He, he knows the truth. And he will make the truth, right, understand. He's the reason why we have come to salvation in the first place. And we don't diminish that concept of the helper. For Adam, though, he recognized there was no, and he says, helper suitable for him or fit for him. It means a corresponding counterpart. What is implied is that whatever he lacked, that there should be someone who fills in that supply. Like, like two puzzle pieces, like, like I, I extend out in some and I'm concave in another, and that other piece should fit in. So that in partnership we'd be able to accomplish much more than I could do on my own. That's, that's the idea. It is that, that we, there is a counterpart to me, one that fits, one, one that, is that, that is associated with me, that, that corresponds to me, that would be a, a, a right and identifiable partner with me for all that the Lord has for me to accomplish in this life. That's the context. There is not a suitable helper for me. And so then God makes Adam to fall asleep. He takes a rib from his side. He fashions it into a woman. And when he awakes, he sees Eve for the first time. The first man and the first woman. And his first reaction in verse 23 of Genesis 2 is this. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, this, this expands the concept of the suitability of how she is his counterpart. She is a helper fit for him. He recognizes, yeah, you know, there was Mr. Ostrich, Mrs. Ostrich, right? But there's only one Adam. But now there is another. And she is the right correspondent. She is, she is bone like my bone, flesh like my flesh. And so we will call her Isha, which means woman, gender specific in the Old Testament, because she was taken out of man, Ish. Isn't that interesting? I think it's interesting that our English word is similar that way because Adam, right, Adam, that's kind of a proper noun and, and can be used of all mankind. It's like anthropos. But, but Adam, if you want to talk about him gender specifically, in the Hebrew, you call him ish. He's a man or a husband sometimes, depending on the context, right? He's ish. And he's saying, I'm going to name this corresponding helpmate, I'm going to name him, her, Isha. Because it's like, there's Isha, there's Isha. Like, there is man, and there's woman. You get it? Like, it's like, it's, like it's so corresponding that the, that the name of this, this other person ought to, like, what she is, ought to be kind of related to what I am. And it's an honor. It's to say that we are the same, but different. And so that's verse 23 of Genesis 2. Then by the time we hit verse 24, the next verse in Genesis 2 is the same as what we're reading here in Ephesians 5.31. Therefore, therefore based on what? Well, therefore based on the fact that here is finally my suitable helpmate, the one that corresponds to me. Therefore, since God has now created someone that is like me, someone that's an obvious partner to me, someone that corresponds to me, therefore then, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I'm going to unpack this in a, in a second. But the, the one thing that we have to get the gravity of is when God declares this as the definition of what it means that a man and a woman become, you know, husband and wife. You, you notice that he says that a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There's no fathers and mothers when he first states this. Right? 
There's Adam and Eve. They haven't even had children. There's no, the only concept of fatherhood they might have is God is their heavenly father. There's no fathers and mothers yet. And yet is a, is a timeless principle that God declares before there are fathers and mothers that all humanity might follow in terms of defining their marital union. It's a man who will leave his earthly parents, will cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's, that's how we want to do this, this, this verse a little bit, right? This won't take that long to walk through. But first is the principle of leaving. Um, the term is uh, sometimes used in the sense of abandoning. It's like literally like someone leaves. It's like, hey, listen, you know, um, when, when our students, uh, when our kids grow up and they go off to college, this is the off part. They kind of leave. I mean, unless the college is pretty close and they're just commuting, right? Or if we're at home and we go off to work, we leave, right? This is literally what it means. It means that a, a man will leave his father and mother. It means that there is some sort of separation that is to take place. It, the, the way that we should understand this is if we are living out what God intends for our, our human family structure, then for our sons to leave that household means that he is leaving probably the most intimate human relationships that he has established. Like, like these two old people used to change my diapers, right? They know everything about it. They know my whole health history. They know my attitudes, my bad attitudes. They've been with me through thick and thin, right? I know them, and they know me, and there is, there is this intimacy in terms of relationship that has lasted my entire life, and I'm about to leave that to go and cleave to something else. It's not a loss of love, but there is, right, because there is still an honoring of father and mother. We are still called to honor our parents, right, all the rest of their days on earth. But it is to say that there's a, a dynamic shift in our human relationships. At weddings, I like to say, today we will witness a son become a father. Uh, no, 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 no. A son, <laughs> that Lord willing is much later, right? A son become a husband and a daughter become a wife. We're saying that as we understand their primary relational function in family, it is no longer the priority that I'm a son, that I'm a daughter. Are those significant? Of course they're significant. God wants us to hold them significant and honor our mothers and fathers. But what's newly established is this union that is to be the new, right, relational, intimate union, um, the one that, that we, right, that is the most significant, the most intimate, um, the highest priority of our relational realities, even beyond whatever we had with mom and dad. So there's a leaving. Then there's a cleaving, right? Um, the term is used of uh, cementing together like uh, certain materials, sometimes used of melting metals together, right? The idea is that these, these adhere closely. They stick to each other with some sense of permanence. I won't read to you, but Mal- Malachi 2, right, Verses 13 to 16 might be worthwhile read for you. And there, Malachi is, is chastising Israel and saying, Dude, you want to know why God is uninterested in giving you favor and accepting your offering? He says, Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, God right, is saying, I'm not interested in your offering. I'm not interested in your worship. I'm not interested in you going through the details, going through the motions of worship services, etc. I'm not interested in any of that. Why? Because you're not good to your wife. Your lack of covenant faithfulness to your wife demonstrates to me that, that you don't understand what relational faithfulness even means. This is the human relationship that is supposed to be the most intimate of all of your human relationships, and you are unfaithful to her. So do you think, by extension, you would be prone to be faithful to me? I don't even want to hear you. I think 1 Peter 3 says something similar, right? When it says, husbands, live with your wives with understanding, with knowledge, thoughtfully, carefully, right? Um, otherwise, your prayers are hindered. And I know there's some, um, some teachers, and I'm not mad at them, but, and they think that that... that that probably doesn't refer to God not hearing prayers. God always hears prayers. I agree. God hears prayers. He just doesn't answer them. 
nor does he respond positively to all of our prayers, particularly if, as a husband, we are not living with our wives with understanding, with an attitude of she is the most precious relationship on earth. There's a leaving, and this is the cleaving, and there's a weaving. Have you guys heard that before? Leave, cleave, weave. I've heard that a lot for, for Genesis 2.24. I like it. And what we mean by weave is a singular phrase. It's that phrase, one flesh. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, will cleave, will hold fast to his wife. It says, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh, that relationship or that description of their relationship um, is, is probably the single most intimate expression of intimacy that, that the scriptures conjure for us. It's not just that you are in some kind of marital covenant. That's true, right? In other words, I've made a promise. I made a promise to Kathy. Kathy's made a promise to me. And we are, we are held by God to those covenant promises that we made. And if you're married in this room, you similarly made right marital covenant promises. You promise to each other that you care for each other, you be there for each other, that you support each other, that you hold hands and face all the consequences and the travails and the blessings of life together as a husband. You made those promises, and those covenant promises are good and excellent. But it means more than that. It doesn't just mean because one flesh is not, is not a statement that is used for our relationship with our kids. I love my children, Right? I'm not in a one flesh relationship with my children, according to scripture, right? I love my church family. We are, well, I take that back. We're going to have to talk about that a little bit, right? There is a union that we have with each other in Christ that is intimate and spiritual. But this one flesh relationship, it describes no other relationship except that of husband and wife. Brothers, drink that in for a moment, right? Sisters, drink that in for a moment. Let that percolate in your souls to remind you that there is in all their relations, all the things that you'd like to do, all the people you'd like to spend time with, all the people you'd like to invest energy with or that you're proud of or you're glad with or you like to, you know, just just want to know that they're okay. There is no relationship, humanly speaking, than that of your spouse. That is a one flesh relationship. And it speaks of not just conjugal union, not just physical intimacy, but it speaks of a spiritual, emotional, like we are one. I mean, the idea that that it is expressed this way by God himself, that they are one flesh, suggests that once you have said, I do, there is no Nam, there's no Kathy, there is a Nam that is Kathy's Nam. There's a a Kathy that is Nam's Kathy, right? Right? They're, they are considered as if they were one in the eyes of the Lord and really to their own eyes. A union so strong and so overwhelming that each person's life is no longer individual and separate. They are woven together as if they were one new person. That, that is a tremendously strong and theological statement about the value, the intimacy, and the depth of the marital union. That that's what verse 31 describes. And Paul brings that up to remind husbands, to remind wives, that before we get to like children obeying, or children obeying parents, and parents, particularly fathers, not provoking children, and bond servants, and masters, before we get to the rest of the household code, this is the foundation. There's a husband and a wife, and their marital union has been described from the opening pages of scripture, in terms of what it should look like, how it should be defined. And any attitude that doesn't speak of leaving, cleaving, and weaving, right, it is not worthy of being defined by the biblical definition of marital oneness, of one flesh, of marital union. That's marital union, verse 31. Then we get to the second part, right, which is the Christian union. And the reason why I call it the Christian union is, is look at verse 32. It says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, whatever this mystery is, one, it's profound, megas, it's great, it's significant. And he says, I'm saying that this refers, this mystery refers to Christ and the church. 
So in other words, this isn't just, we had just talked about a husband and wife, their marital union, but that is in the shadow of this greater union, this union between Christ and his church. And, and you know, I've kind of given away the, the punchline in a way, I guess, right? But the mystery is Christ and the church. This term mystery has been used in Ephesians earlier, like in chapter 3, of uh, Christ and his relationship with his redeemed church, as well as um, the oneness that we have, not just with Christ, but with one another. Jews and Gentiles are one new man, one new humanity in the body of Christ. You can leave aside all of your cultural preferences. That doesn't mean you don't have to be cultural. Enjoy your culture. You know, I love Korean food. I happen to be Korean, right? I don't need to abandon that. But I do love like Mexican food. I like all kinds of food. I think I like food, period, right? Human food, good food, right? Like, that's fine. You have all these cultural, nuanced experiences that you like. Nothing wrong with that. Things that define your personality, your, your likes, your take on stuff, that's okay. But when it comes to our fellowship, if I am redeemed by the blood of Christ, and you're redeemed by the same blood of Christ, we are one. And it's appropriate for us to call each other brothers. Appropriate to call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because, because we're the same. And we're the same because of what Christ has established for us. See, the term mystery in, uh, in Ephesians um, refers to a secret plan that is hidden by God and is not unraveled right, by human ingenuity or insight. It is something that is given by revelation and unveiled by God himself. In other words, whenever the term mystery is used in Ephesians, it's about something that's unexpected that God has now revealed to us, right? Uh, we're talking Ephesians 3, right? If you flip over there, right, if you're in your paper Bibles, and if you're in your electronic Bibles, I apologize because now you've got to go back and choose a three, right? all kinds of nonsense that has to happen there. Bring your paper Bibles. Um, Ephesians 3, it says, starting in verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation that I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. See, the great mystery is not that, that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ was predicted and expected. And he came a little differently than many expected, but nevertheless, he is prophesied clearly in Scripture. The mystery is that the Gentiles are included into our fellowship. The Jews and Gentiles are all one in Christ. That there's a new identity in Christ. And this union of Christ and his church, that's the mystery. That's the thing that has been revealed. That's what Paul is addressing and why in the midst of talking about husbands love your wives, he busts out with how Christ gave himself up for her in verse 25. And then he says that he might sanctify. This is just all Christ. That he might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. You see that? It's, it's, it, the mystery is Christ and the church. This is what's been revealed. And let me give you a, a little bit of, uh, of, of, of technical kind of appreciation of this. Um, one, the question is, okay, so what particularly are we talking about in terms of mystery? And I've already said that we're talking about the mystery <clears throat> of Christ, right, and his union with the church. And that paints, like, you know, our relationship as husband and wives, etc. I've already said that. But here's some other options that are available to you. They're wrong, but they're available to you. And one is that the mystery is that the husband and wife are one flesh. That's the mystery. The mystery is that, oh my goodness, can you believe that the husband and wife are one flesh? I don't, I don't see how that's a mystery. That goes back to the second chapter of Genesis, right? It's not new. And perhaps they mean that it, it is newly defined or, or something like that. But that, that is one thing that, that some would say. 
There are others who believe that the mystery is the marital union of Genesis 2.24. But the idea is that it is new in the sense that now it has become a sacrament of the church. And you know what, what church that sounds like? That sounds like the Roman Catholic Church, and certainly it is. So they take marriage as a sacrament, meaning that it conveys grace. So you get married at the church. That's why you got to get married at the church. Right, And as you get married at the church and the, the priest casts his blessing upon you and the priest has to cast his blessing upon you, then what happens is there's a, there's a reenactment of Christ's marriage to his church in you and your bride. And so the Catholic version of this, Christ is kind of getting married again in you and in your marriage to your bride. All of it's just kind of wacky. It's certainly not, um, I think, accurate to this. I think simply the mystery, as we've already said, is this, this deep and precious idea that marriage, right, as excellent and one flesh as it is, right, that God's relationship with us, Christ's relationship with the church, that's the mystery. It's marvelous and remarkable the depth and the, and the, and the width and the variety of individuals that come to faith and that are Christ. And the church is his bride. That's, what the, that's one of the illustrations that scripture uses in the New Testament for the church's relationship with Christ. And that intimacy, right, that is surprising. That a bunch of pagans like you and I have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I wasn't raised on the Old Testament, right? I didn't practice dietary restrictions or uh, memorize... Um, the great Shema in Hebrew. And yet here I am, a child of God, right? Given access to the things of Jesus Christ because of his great love for us. Christ loves the church and he calls it his bride. In fact, he calls the intimacy such that it is his body. And how interesting, because the parallel in Genesis 2.24 is that that's what 2.24 is about, right? That, that a husband will leave his father and mother, will cleave to his wife, and they become a new body, right? One new flesh, right? And, and similarly, when we're talking about right, right, the union of, uh, of, um, of husband and wife, remember the earlier part in husbands, and I think we said that when we were teaching through that, but there's these interesting statements about, like, you know, the husband that loves his wife loves himself, right? And you think, well, what's this about? What's the, well, because they're supposed to be one flesh. And the loving care that he gives to his wife is like loving care for his self. Not in a self-centered way, like, you know, what's, what's you know, hers is mine, and what's mine is mine. Like, like everything's just mine. Not in that selfish way. But quite the opposite, that whatever I do unto her is like doing unto us, unto this one flesh relationship. And that's the mystery of Christ in the church. He's saying, how profound is that mystery, our salvation, and our placement into God's family? That's what's profound. And that's why I say I'm saying that this refers to Christ in the church. This mystery that I'm saying is so profound refers to Christ in the church. But it flavors the way that we understand, right, our relationship with each other. See, he says the mystery is profound in that first part. Megas, it means great. And the idea is the intimacy of Christ and his loving union with his bride, the church, has now been revealed. Because, see, the old covenant saints, they look for a savior that will be a prophet, a priest, and a king. And all those things are true of Jesus. He is all three. But instead of a king that is detached from his people and rules from afar, we have a king that is connected to his people as if a husband, right, to his bride, or as if the head of his body. Instead of a prophet that kind of wanders on his solo mission and kind of keeps away from everyone else and does his own thing, he is a prophet among us. He speaks to us as if he is the head and we are his body, so that whatever he says for us to do, we fulfill Instead of a priest that needs to keep some distance so that he would himself would remain unstained by the rest of us and untouched by our unholiness, he's the kind of priest that comes among us. And to touch him is to be cleansed of all unrighteousness and uh, to be shed of all of our blemishes. See, Jesus connects with his redeemed as a husband should connect with his wife. And that's, that's what Paul is building on. 
There's a love and intimacy between Christ and his church. That's the mystery now revealed. It is profound in the sense that as we think about our human relations, our family relationships, Christ's relationship to us needs to redefine that. Right? The gospel union of Christ to his church. That's the great thing. But that's also, right, the monolithic thing that we live in the shadow of. That our human relationships, that our, you know, our being a husband, our being a wife, our being a parent, our being a child, should be all colored by the greatness of Christ and his union to us, his church. We may be missing out on the greater blessing of what our marriages, our family relationships um, ought to be if we are not centralizing that gospel relationship of Christ and that Christian union of Christ with his church. But let me say a word about something, right? Because I think in this particular part, it's important to say this. Because as we emphasize uh, marriage and its value and its oneness and, and what it might represent as, as a Christian husband, as a Christian wife, as they represent the love of Christ and the intimacy of Christ and his people uh, to the world, um, with all of that, you may be thinking, well, what if I'm single, right? Do single people miss out on the greater blessing if we miss out on marriage? See, and I think you're thinking that backwards, because the greater blessing, right, this, the, right, this uh, what it says, this mystery is profound, the greatness of this mystery. The mystery is not marriage. The mystery is your relationship with Christ. And if that's the case, then the greater blessing is your relationship with Christ, not that hopeful relationship in marital union. If you're a member of the church, you have that which is greater, the greater union, the eternal union. And we ought to be careful not to diminish that union with Christ into something that is cheapened by thinking that this temporal, earthly, human marriage, which will end in our death, right, is somehow a thing to be missed out on. Marriage is a blessing. I love my marriage to Kath. I think she tolerates her marriage to me, right? Um, Marriage is a blessing for us. But it's not the end-all, be-all. The, the Christian single has a more intimate, right, one, right, one-souled relationship with, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the whole principle I think Paul's trying to drive home. He's trying to drive home not just, hey, have good marriages, because it's a good thing in this life, and it's the greatest part of experiencing life. He's saying the opposite. Have good marriages because you have something that is so much greater than everyone else that that should be reflected and, and, and demonstrated even in your marriages, right? And singleness doesn't miss out on that greater union. I won't go through all of it. First Corinthians 7, though, you can look at that on your own, speaks to the advantage of the single life. Verse 26 and 27, Paul says, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free to a wife? Do not seek a wife. He's saying, listen, with all the junk that is going on around us, it might be good if you're single to stay single. But if you're married, don't act like, oh, I should be single. Do, do your thing that God has given you. He talks later about how the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord with his life. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. And you say, why? Because he's a worldling? No. Because worldly things affect his wife. It affects his family. And he has to have some thoughtfulness about that. He is bound by some of these things. I can't just pick up and go, Catherine, you know what I decided? I'm going to reach unreached people groups in, 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 um, in the Everglades. Right? I'm gone. Right? Um, maybe if I don't die out there, I'll see you in a, you know, a few decades. Um, and uh, good luck with the kids. Right? And if you choose to go off on your own, then tell the kids, you know, good luck to them when they're by themselves, right? Like, like is that how our Christian life is going? Of course not. The marriage covenant union means that, that there is a responsibility outside of whatever I want to do, even if it's for the Lord, right? In verse 38 of 1 Corinthians 7 says, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. It's not, it's not castigating marriage, but it's making sure that we don't see marriage in the wrong light, as, as many Christian groups often do. 
as if this is the primary purpose of your life on earth, right? To spread the gospel, but make sure you get married along the way. Brothers and sisters, like the greater union is our Christian union. So let's back up to the big outline. We, we talked about our marital union, Genesis 2.24. Our Christian union just now, and we'll finish with this. The Christian marital union. It ties up in verse uh, 33, right? Verse 33, and we'll move through this rather quickly. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's a rehashing of what has already been stated about the Christian wife's role and the Christian husband's role. Only here, I think appropriately, Paul begins with the husband to say, right, let each of you love his wife as himself. Now, we've already unpacked the greater, the more explicit principle in loving your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her back in verse 25. But notice this slight subtle change. Now Paul says, let each one of you. It's like he's individualizing this. Before he's talking generally to Christian husbands, but now he's saying you. Yes, you, Christian husband. You particularly or you who desire or plan to soon be a Christian husband, you, each of you, is to love his wife as himself. And again, that himself part, hopefully by now, is colored by Genesis 2.24. She's one flesh with you. And so therefore, you have an obligation to love her um, as yourself in a way that means so much more than she gives to me all the stuff that I want, Right? And I'm loving myself by making sure that she loves me by doing all the stuff that I want her to do. It's the opposite, right? It's to love her as if she is so preciously part of you that you do all you can to care for her. I was going to say some things to to singles about how do you know if you want to get married. We'll just pass that. You'll know because you are growing in this kind of theological faithfulness, right? But the command is to let each of you love his wife as himself. There's a depth to Christian husband's love for his wife, right? And it should flow out of an intimacy that that speaks of a one flesh union relationship. And it should be flavored by the greater union that we have with Christ himself. All of that. And you say, well, I'm awkward. I'm often self-centered, etc. Well, well, good. Repent, right? And become the kind of man that God intends you to be in that marital relationship. Otherwise, don't get married. Get mature, right? That, that's the advice I give to young men, right? Grow up in the things of your Christian union and let that prepare you for your Christian marital union. Wives, this last part, right? And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The, 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 again, you have the individualizing, right? By saying that the wife is singular here, so that it's like saying each one of you, right? Uh, for the husband, as earlier in the previous phrase. The concept being that, that she, individually, each one of you that are Christian wives in this room, you are to live with an attitude of respect towards your husband. So what I understand from this, because earlier it was, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I think what this suggests is that the attitude behind that submission is this, that you have an internal attitude of respect for him. The term for respect is translated respect is our term phobos, which, you know, we can translate into fear. You know, phobia is our English term for fears. Um, And it's not so much that she lives in terror of him. No, not at all. But, but instead, and I think rightly so, we translate this respect or esteem. She venerates him. She thinks much of him. Does she always think much of him? Not necessarily. He's not perfect. That's not the point. But she lifts him up. She gives weight to his words. She's desirous to emulate his character. That's what it means that she submits to him, that her art attitude is not just, what did you ask me to do? Okay, I'll do that. Dumb, dumb. Right? But that she likes to be with him and likes to esteem him and gives him respect. Man, it's not just about, I love him. Think about the the theologian Tina Turner who said that, what's love got to do with it? (laughs) Just a secondhand emotion, right? It's not, it's okay to love emotionally, but the emotion should come from the attitude, the motivations of the heart that know what is true and right and excellent. 
right? And wives are called. It's a rehash of what has already been stated about her, but from her own heart's attitude that she gives her husband respect. She, th- she is thoughtful towards him. And if a Christian husband lives that way and a Christian wife lives that way, then you have in that, that union a unique and excellent right, display of what it means that Christ has redeemed us and made us his own. Because that's what it looks like. It looks like in this earth, it looks like us, imperfect, but constantly remembering that there is something deeper in terms of our union, our Christian marital union. Let me read you one quote from, uh, from Herod Honer's commentary because Honer is amazing. And that's reason enough to read from him. But he says this. Believers' marital harmony is not to be dependent on their own ingenuity, but rather should be motivated by obedience to God and by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. The successful development of this relationship requires spirit-filled partners who are truly concerned for each other and who have a real desire to see God work in their lives. The primary goal of marriage is not to please oneself, but to see God's purposes work in and through each partner individually and corporately as if they were one flesh. See, that's the goal of the Christian's marital union. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that gives us such practical guidance, even in terms of things like marriage and family. I pray that you would help us to take it seriously, not not just to try to succeed or to do what we think is the best thing for the experience of our family or for our marriages, but to take it seriously that all of it must be lived in the shadow of our union, our life, our fellowship with you. Lord, help us not just to have decent marital unions, but to have Christian, Christ-centered marital unions, so that it would honor you and our lives, our lives, even our marriage lives, would, would stand for something greater than simply something that is good for ourselves or generally good for the watching world. We praise you for your grace to us in saving us from our sins. May we walk in newness of life because we trust in you and we repented of our sins and we believe that you alone could grant us salvation and life. In Jesus' name we pray.